Good, good afternoon, and welcome to the Other Page Radio. My name is Haywood Fennell Sr. This program is brought to you by Triad Veterans League in association with BNN Media Group. We're really happy to be here today. WBCA LP 102.9 FM Boston's Boston's Community Radio Station. We're here today. We've got a lot to say, and we hope that you're ready for our guest today who's been so busy in this community. The last few generations, uh, we get an opportunity today to first say thank you, Mr. Barry Gaither, for all the work that you've done in this community and beyond in the name of theater, arts, and culture enrichment. We are honored to have you here today to hear what you have to say about what's going on in a place that we all should know. Your place, Barry. How you been, my friend? And welcome. Thank you. I've been very well and hard at work sustaining the things that we need as a people and as a community in order to know ourselves more perfectly. So I'm gratified and grateful to this community for providing that opportunity. It's been my joy to serve. The National Center for Afro-American Artists is located on Walnut Ave, and that, Barry, give me the number. 300 Walnut Avenue, or you could think of it as the corner of Crawford Street and Walnut Avenue, or as adjacent to the David A. Ellis School. Where we see the big head by John Williams, I believe. Wilson. John Wilson. Yes, the big head, which is formerly named Eternal Presence, and which has this year, for the ninth time, its own ritual event in early July, about which I'd like to say something in a few moments anyhow. Barry, you don't have to wait to say a few moments. You can come in now. Well, then, start it off. let me say this. Eternal Presence was commissioned by the National Center for Afro-American Artists in 19... uh, early 1980s, and installed in 1987. John Wilson, who grew up in Roxbury and graduated from the School of the Museum of Fine Arts, wanted to see such a work in the community of his birth. So he was very happy with the commission, and we were able to make it happen. Since it has been there, we've started a ritual called Putting Your Touch on Greatness. This event happens every year on the Saturday after the 4th of July, and it runs from 11 to 2. It's an opportunity for anyone at any age, from youngsters to the elderly, to come and help wash eternal presence and polish it with black wax. Mm. That does a couple of things. One, 
it makes us understand that we own that piece. And like things that we own and value, we need to care for it. It honors the wish of John that the piece should remain dark as you see it. Bronze, when out of doors, typically turns greenish. In order to prevent that, we do the black wax polishing, and there is a message in preserving this darker look of the face. The message is, no matter who you are in the human family in the present time, if you're Homo sapien, your ancestors come from East Africa. So when we speak of something as universal, we don't think of Greek or Roman, we think of African, because it is the peoplehood that we knew first, and eternal presence reminds us of that. Boy, oh boy, what a nice way to introduce a, a situation, Barry. I, I, I got I to gotta insert this in and then get back to why you're here. I was reading online about these Egyptian historians uh, and Netflix had some misunderstanding about Cleopatra and was she white or was she black? And it's been going back and forth, back and forth. But I'm trying to figure out, Barry, if, uh, first of all, if Egypt is in Africa, and secondly, who are all these statues with these uh, African features to the wide noses and so on and such that we see in the statues. What? What? Are you familiar with that any at all, Barry? I've followed this a little bit. It's a kind of uh, complicated situation, let me say. The question of black people in ancient Egypt is not debatable. And when you look at the body of sculpture and other materials, there's plenty of visual evidence that's there. Where this becomes complicated is because Cleopatra belongs to what's called the Ptolemy. This is a group of uh, political institutions that descend from Alexander the Great and represent a late invasion of part of Egypt carried out from what was really Middle East. I think the historical thing is that part of her family is legitimately uh, Egyptian, and part of it would be associated with the Greeks, who were the people of uh, Alexander the Great. So, that's a piece of this confusion. It will get reckoned out. And I think that, like all things Western, there will be an element of racism that will become clear. Mm -hmm. Well, Barry, you know, uh, since we are talking about Egypt, you do have a, uh, a relic, if that's the right word, in the museum. Is that right? Well, we have Nubian. Right. Uh, the Egyptians and the Nubians have been neighbors since the beginning of time. 
And anybody who's had neighbors for a long time knows that the boundaries and borders between neighbors are always shifting and are always permeable. So there's people of both uh, backgrounds always intermixed in important ways. When you said permeable, Barry, I went right to my science class when I was in like the eighth grade. Yes. And the word permeable, it has something to do with being able to get through? Yes. Right. Okay. Okay. Barry. For example, when you're talking of the boundaries between black people and white people in the South, everybody just looking around can see that those boundaries got pushed a lot. Mm-hmm. Barry Gates is here today, everybody, a well-known and much-appreciated scholar, along with all of his work curating and speaking all over the country and building hope, uh, building knowledge that becomes wisdom when it is applied, is our guest today. We are really happy to have him here. This is WBCALP 102.9 FM Boston the other page radio sponsored by Triad Veterans League. I wanted to, when you mentioned Nubian and Egyptian uh, in the uh, cultures, here in Boston we now have an area called Nubian Square. Can you just share to our listeners something about the Nubian that makes us be disconnected and not connected? Well, I'm not quite sure how to understand uh, the question. Well, let let me me... rephrase it. Let me rephrase it. What is the Nubian to our culture? The Nubian to our culture is a parent. It's a predecessor from whom we descend culturally and also in important ways, perhaps physically as well. So when we, as black people, especially in this hemisphere, look to claim our heritage in the world, we claim as an important piece of that the ancient Nile Valley. And the ancient Nile Valley is the home of the civilizations created by Nubia and by Egypt. So we claim it as a birthright. And as a birthright, it is both an actual and a symbolic heritage and legacy. So just as some people claim Greco-Roman or Euro-American, we claim Nubian and with as much validity. Can you can you just um, you know when you when you look at and and this is I'm going a long time ago you know there were a lot of divisions in uh, Egypt you know uh, knew this old that kingdoms where where are the the Nubian in that are these the pharaohs that we see images of that look like us? is How did we get in there to become pharaohs? Well, there are whole clusters of uh, 
Nubian pharaohs, especially in the 25th dynasty. The 25th dynasty is a period of time when the Nubians governed everything from the Mediterranean Sea to the Abyssinian highlands, a vast area. But even when uh, there were different political divisions along that long distance of the Nile, you have to keep in mind that there still were relationships between Egyptians and Nubians, and that much that is culturally Egyptian has its origins in Nubia and vice versa. Mm. We, uh, in our own times, think of time in such short pieces. If you think of a black American experience, for example, in what becomes the United States, it's just a few hundred years, really, five, what you say. But when you think of Nubia and Egypt, you're talking about millennia of being together. So you really have to think about those as integral in ways that are different than the short times that we think of. When you think in the long term, you're talking about time that is like biblical time. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, the Nubia were known as warrior as a warrior breed, is that right? Yes, Nubians were especially known as uh, archers, as bowmen. And uh, in the Bible, they are often identified as Cushites or Mm. Nubia itself as Cush. So uh, in the book of Hezekiah, there's a story of uh, his asking the king Tahaka of Nubia to come and help defend Jerusalem. So there's a long, rich history here, which goes both directions, and we claim it as a piece of our own history. Barry, you know, uh, there's so much going on now around this uh, racial theory and banning books, and uh, it didn't happen uh, for us as we know it did. What are your thoughts about that? I don't believe in banning books. I don't believe in trying to shut off knowledge. I think you have to learn as much as you can and try to, in the process, also gain wisdom. Wisdom will help you figure out the use of knowledge. But if you don't have knowledge, you don't have raw material, even with which to work. This is The Other Page Radio. Today our guest is Edmund Barry Gaither, and we are talking about Nubian. We are talking about Egyptian. We are talking about information that will help us better understand our culture and uh, the work that Barry has been doing over at the museum. Barry, can you tell us a little bit about the rooftop again and what that means? So Abbotsford, which is the name of the historic building in which the Museum of the National Center of Afro-American Artists is located, was occupied around 18, uh, 
72. So the building is a little more than 150 years old. We acquired the building in the 70s as a ruin in the wake of the Boston desegregation crisis, and we occupied the space only in the 1980s. We've been making improvements on the space over a long period of time, and as many of you may know, an appreciable portion of that time, I really invested in what we've looked uh, looked upon as a great opportunity with parcel P3 that in the end did not work out. We return to the work of putting Abbotsford back in the best shape possible for it, and the first thing that it really needed was a new roof. So we redid the roof in slate and copper, the original materials, and uh, that was at an expense of a million one hundred thirty-five thousand dollars. So, having accomplished the replacement of the roof, we turned attention to the masonry and the exterior appointments, and we're working on that presently. If you were to drive by, you'd see the scaffolds that ring the building. Will flow from the work with the masonry into giving a final treatment to the windows and creating an ADA-compliant What is ADA in Excuse me. What uh, is ADA? American with Disabilities. It's, uh, okay, okay. It means we'll be handicapped ready. Right, right. Okay. I know you had mentioned that uh, earlier, ADA, and I wanted our listening audience to know that everybody will be able to come to the museum. Is the museum open uh, now, right now, Barry? We're open more by appointment at the moment, but I'm hoping that by the late summer we will announce uh, public hours and resume being open. It will probably be for uh, perhaps three or four days of the week rather than the six, but we hope to get back to the six too. We have a lot of work to do and fully recovering from the impact of the virus and from other things that we are trying to take advantage of this interruption to address. Barry, I want to, uh, and I want our listening audience to understand the the magnitude of your concern and care for the culture, arts, and the people that are involved on behalf of the Oscar Michaud Family Theater Program Company, I would like to take this opportunity to thank you, Barry, for the work that you've done for not just us, but for the community by providing venue, space, time, so that we can do our events. And that's a big thing because here in Boston and greater Boston, there are very few venues that appreciate black African-American art theater, and you were involved in helping us establish the Bridge Award, which we will be resuming on May 13th, honoring uh, Irene O'Bannon and a few of the veterans that are involved in the company, and we will be at the Vine Street Community Center private event at 339 Dudley Street. But because of your generosity, Barry, A lot of things happen at the museum. 
that has helped us. When I say us, I'm speaking of the entire community, and I just want to take this opportunity on our show, the other page of radio, to thank you for your kindness and your concern and your love for the arts. We really appreciate this, Barry. Thank you. Thank you very much. much. Every bit of it has been our honor to serve. Right, and that's what you're doing. Barry, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with, uh, you know, the the culture uh, activities and the writings and the things that you do because you're a prolific writer? I know that. And you're also a poet. I know that, too. So, (laughs) you know, a lot of people don't know that because when they see you, you're moving. You don't talk about yourself as much as uh, we need to hear. Well, from a very young age, I had a great interest in the visual arts, and that grew into a wider, broader interest in the whole spectrum of the arts. Uh, I went to Morehouse College as an undergraduate, and it located me right in the middle of a vibrant cultural and educational scene centered around black history and heritage. And that's the platform from which I then uh, entered into the world. When I came to Boston uh, first, it was in the vision of Dr. Elma Lewis, her vision of a magnificent institution which would have arts teaching, performing arts, and visual arts, was how I came to understand the goals of the National Center of Afro-American Artists and of the Elma Lewis School of Fine Arts. So I thought I was going to be here for three years or so, and that was a long time ago. I kept revising the three-year plan every five years. So uh, that's that, That's how I came to be so deeply involved I'm laughing in with this you, Barry. work. I'm but, laughing with you. Yeah, I know. But, you know, her vision was uh, a global vision okay. of black people. It was African, it was Caribbean, African-American. It was the whole spectrum of black people from the uh, small struggling family to those who were magnificently successful. It was the idea that we as a people represent the whole range of humanity and our work is always to become the best that we could be. So I saw myself joining in a struggle that had that commitment as a cultural and historical point of view. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Having said that, and we are familiar with Dr. Lewis and her work, you know, which was absolutely outstanding, and it lingers. And uh, how far would you say, Barry, that we are from accomplishing what we need to in terms of theater education and application? I think we're very far from where we need to be because we have still, as a people, not assumed responsibility 
for supporting our own efforts and work. You know, you cannot make things serve you that were never meant to serve you. You have to build the tools that you need. You can't be a suppliant always begging and asking. At some point, you really have to stand up and say, this is mine, and I'm prepared to move it forward. We still need to do that. And we need to do that in all of the arenas, not just in the world of the of theater and drama, but in the world of visual arts, in the world of dance, all of these disciplines we have contributed to magnificently. But when you look to see what we have built institutionally to sustain those things, we have not done what we should have. Barry, thank you so much for stepping on my toes. I really do. Just want to say a word or two about our organization, Tried Veterans League. We are community-based. We've been around a little over 28 years here in the city of Boston. We are concerned about our veterans, and uh, we know a lot of times our veterans don't admit to being veterans, and they are not able or will not go to places like uh, VA hospitals for services and care. Tried Veterans League is working with the community especially with the Whittier Street Community Health Center, to build a bridge, an alliance with other organizations to get people to realize the importance of why we should not ignore our veterans, male or female, especially black veterans. Black veterans have systemically been discriminated against. We've been been denied and tried, and they didn't want to give us the uniform back in the days of the Civil War, American Revolution, we fought in every, every, every place and space for freedom for a country that denies us our freedom, that denies us our freedom. But we're not giving up. We'll continue to be tried, Veterans League, working in the community, being thankful for having people like BNN allowing us to come in and do shows and talk about capacity building and empowering our veterans. My number, 857-204-5312. That's me, a veteran, wanting to work with and help other veterans. Our guest today is a man that has done absolutely marvelous things to educate and to empower our people around the cultural importance of our culture. And that's Edmund Barry Gaither, who was just saying something about the importance of building ourselves and not allowing others to validate our process. You know, we are quick to buy in, and we should be buying out. Because, Barry, I remember you wrote a paper, an introduction for us, that we still use the Oscar Michaud Family Theater Program Company is forever in debt to you and your leadership and your voice to trying to awake people from the slumber of not knowing who they are so that they can declare themselves based on our historic contributions. Now, the Harlem Renaissance, Barry, is a very significant time 
in our cultural history. Can you tell us a little bit about your feelings about that? Yes, the uh, era of the Harlem Renaissance, also at the time called the the Negro Renaissance, uh, the importance of that is it's a moment when black people are reclaiming the African legacy and integrating it into the black American legacy. So we see in that moment a new interest in African art, a new interest in the stories that tie the Caribbean, the African, and the uh, Afro-American into one thing. We see uh, a moment of cultural flourish that is very productive. It's a moment in which figures like Langston Hughes come into their own. It's the same time period that Roland Hayes is, for example, performing here. It's often spoken of in terms of New York, but it was a moment of cultural flourish for black people in other places as well, in Philadelphia and Chicago, Baltimore and Washington. So it was the platform on which 20th century black cultural uh, renaissance stands. So it's the touchstone for who we were in the last century. And we are now at the eve of what is another set of opportunities around cultural expression and around the integration of cultural, economic, and political ideas. So we need to be thinking of what lessons can we learn from a hundred years ago that will fuel us in making tomorrow. You know, Barry, uh, it's funny that, you know, you say that, and then again, it's not funny. Because the Niagara Falls Movement later to become the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and the Urban League was formed around the same time in the early 1920s. Maybe the Harlem Renaissance was like 1919, 1918. But it's significant. And, and, and the reason why I say that, because there's a line in what you wrote that says about the flowering, the explosion of a cultural reality uh, that's written. And that is what uh, Ida B. Wells and W.E.B. Du Bois and Walter White and the founders of the Urban League were all about, you know. Yes, we were coming into knowing something of our power and seeing in that power a new commitment to our purpose. And it was substantially fueled also by the Great Migration, by the Caribbean uh, contribution. Mm -hmm. to uh, urban environments here by the people coming from the South and discovering a greater freedom in the North than they'd had in the South, though still far from the freedom that should have been. So uh, in that moment was a rebirth, and that's why, of course, it gets dubbed Renaissance. 
Let me ask you this question, Barry. Uh, were there any uh, Europeans, Americans of note that were involved in the development of the Harlem Renaissance? Yes, there were. Uh, certainly on the economic side, one of the more interesting stories that comes from that era is the young Langston Hughes, when struggling to become a writer, is looking like everyone struggling in the arts for, for support uh, to help him along the way. There was a, a woman, a Mrs. Mason, who was white, and she liked the idea of supporting these young artists, but she and Langston fell out early on <laughs> because she basically wanted to support her vision of who he should be rather than his vision of who he was. So there is always that kind of tension in these kinds of sponsorships when you're not the sponsor of your own thing. It's a question of can you use your own voice or not? And he couldn't use his own voice with her purse. So he became himself. Right. And we're all far richer for that. Suppose he had compromised and tried to write for what she wanted him to write for. Right. He would never have been the person. He wouldn't have been a great oak tree in the forest in which we live. He would have been a willow underfoot. Right. So, you know, Barry, it's, it's, it's great to hear you say that because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm involved in theater a little bit, you know, and one of the things that uh, come, came to mind when you was answering that question was instead of Langston uh, having that experience in our play, the Harlem Renaissance we got visited with a gospel flavor. We used Zora Neale Hurston, and uh, she talks about uh, this lady downtown uh, that wants to support her, finance her, but uh, you know she's trying to dominate her. You know, and uh, the line that I remember Zora saying that I wrote was that she had to tell that lady, "Honey." Slavery is over. You know, so we find ourselves, even today, sometimes because of our desire to be in the game and not know that we're just the game, uh, people compromise uh, their, their talent. Well, actually, in the case of Zora, it's the same lady, mm -hmm. uh, Mrs. Mason, and there's another little story that's uh, related to uh, Zora that's fascinating. Uh, sometimes these patrons would throw lively parties to which all the right people were invited, including all of the aspiring young writers and artists and so forth. And there was such a party that uh, Mrs. Mason gave to which she invited Zora, and uh, when Zora Neale Hurston arrives, she's greeted, and she comes in the lobby. There's a 
exquisite bouquet of red flowers. And she comments on them because it's thoughtful if you're a guest somewhere to comment on things that are beautiful. But the reply that comes back is, I knew you would like them because they're red. <laughs> Color people like red. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. stereotypes at work, even where there's an intent to be generous. Right. Barry, you know, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, say to our listening audience and to you another thank you for your for your determination, your commitment, uh, when you were over there with that partial trying to uh, create something that we still have not achieved, a place of statue for performing and having jobs and, and all of that. I know you came on my television show and, and with guests and you talked about it, uh, Looking at it now, Barry, is there any way that you would have done things different and would have been able to get that project up and about? I guess I would have to say I think we had an obligation to strive towards a vision that we thought could be accomplished and would make a large difference. We entered the fray knowing that it was unguaranteed, but believing that with enough hard work, we stood a chance to come out the other end. We certainly put the hard work in uh, with not quite the end result that we had in mind. I can't answer the question of whether it could have come out differently. I can only answer the question that we gave it all the effort that we could that we did the best at it. And I think what we have to be able to say at the end of any day is I fought the good fight. Well, I just want to thank you for, you know, that response. You know, so so you, you know, but uh, I, I was hoping, Barry. I, well, I, could see I, myself, I could see myself going in there with our theater company because you said that, you know, we're building this for the community, for the thespians, and, the, you know, the learning opportunities that would be involved in that. You know, and I don't want people to think that that setback uh, is the end of our quest to have what we need to educate and to empower our people so that we can understand that we are who we say we are. You know, we are that great people. We were never slaves. We were captured and brought to this hemisphere and scattered like sand to become reunited again and to be able to stand and not be afraid of the booger man. This is The Other Page Radio. My name is Haywood Fennell. Uh, we support veterans. We thank you for being a part of our listening audience. Again, our guest today is Mr. Edmund Barry Gaither, well-known, well-respected, Barry, one other question before we go into the other part of our conversation regarding uh, Harlem Renaissance uh, attributes and hip-hop. What is the connection that you see? Well, I guess the first connection to say is that uh, 
music culture, dance culture, and uh, to a very important degree, theater culture as well. These forms in the American context have been profoundly stamped by black creative talent and energy. So if you think of what the Charleston was in the Harlem Renaissance moment, of what the Lindy Hop was later, these are black popular cultural innovations that radically change what the rest of the world comes to think of as American. Mm -hmm. That continues to be so. You can't find a music around the globe at this point in time that's not profoundly influenced by black musical talent and dance over the last 50 years. So hip-hop is just another wave in this constant infusion of creative talent. Where there are other kinds of concerns are around content and who content serves. And content is deeply influenced by market and who things are marketed to. I think one of the reasons that we need to build cultural institutions is so we can exercise a more profound impact on the criticism of our own creative products. Not everything that is creatively done is worthy in terms of where it takes you in your intellectual and moral growth. So I have reservations about some of the content of popular culture, while at the same time acknowledging that it is reflective of the extraordinary and inexhaustible creativity that black people have brought to the modern world. Well, you know, Barry, I want to say, I said that that was going to be the last question for this particular segment of our show, but I, I just want to again uh, thank you for some of the exhibits that has been shown at the Museum of Afro-American Artists. I recall one situation of a young artist, and there was a, I mean, it was a fantastic message, you know, uh, regarding creativity, you know, sneakers, and was in one of, the, one of the pieces, and, you know, things that were relative to our culture, to the way we live, and, and et cetera. And that was an opportunity for people to better understand the complexities of what it is to be a black youth in America and for that person to be able to express that and have it someplace in our community that it could be seen. Thank you so much for that, Barry. I Part of the that. role that museums have to play and ought to play is to stretch our growth. You know, you know you're growing when you're occasionally getting stretched and have to think about something twice. So that's part of what has to be an institutional role because the institutional role is to stretch from where we are now to where we could be in the near future and to do it in such a way that things don't break apart 
that instead they grow and evolve in ways that are built one on the other. Right. I can't say enough, speaking for myself, Barry, my growth has uh, been uh, really manifested in how I appreciate myself and my culture and my people and the people that are involved. You know, the Oscar Michelle Family Theater Program Company had to have help, and you were one of the sources of our help. Your encouragement, you come to see us. You know, we're not the same as we were before. We're getting better. We're trying to become more of a repertoire, regional theater company, because when we go outside of Boston to perform, uh, we see that there is a need. You know, people appreciate us showing up and everything. But our goal now is to uh, do some work on the television level, create these, uh, uh, these uh, not skits, but these episodes about, his, about history that reflects the Harlem Renaissance and the determination to, uh, to grow. And I thank you for that. But uh, the other thing that we're going to talk about today, uh, Barry, is the work that you've been doing over the years with the Juneteenth uh, situation, that event. It's really gone. It has really gone under your leadership, and now you have others coming in to help you. Well, you you know, the Juneteenth, for which we will be doing our 13th annual observance in a month, it is uh, a joint adventure of the Boston Juneteenth Committee and the National Center of Afro-American Artists uh, Sister Jamada Abdelkhalik Henry Smith is the co-chair, I mean, the, the lead chair, I'm co-chair with her, of the committee which does this. And uh, Ralph Brown, who was an activist and a veteran here, yes, Dr. brought Brown. this Brown. to us and... Uh, Beginning in nineteen and, and 2011, we did the first of the Juneteenth observances up on the museum grounds, and we made some decisions when we were thinking about what to do. We wanted to make an event that encouraged people to think about the obligations that come with saying you're free. Mm-hmm. We wanted people to appreciate that uh, this experience in which we live, this United States, is a product that we have bought and paid for with our blood. Mm-hmm. And despite all of that, we have never gotten the recognition fully and the benefits that should accrue from that. And looking at the story of Juneteenth and this long delay between the Emancipation Proclamation and the final end of slavery in practice reminds us that we have to always be pushing for the space between the promise and the delivery. Juneteenth celebrates a delivery, but it's a delivery long after the promise. 
You know, what's ironic about the uh, the Juneteenth, you know, some of the stories that you hear, uh, for instance, one of the stories that I heard, Barry, <clears throat> was that uh, in Texas, they, they didn't know that the Emancipation Proclamation and the end of the Civil War had passed. You know, nobody told them. So they were still on the plantation. And uh, I think that we see that again while we're not on the plantation as the people today who still don't understand, and thank you for saying what you're saying, the importance of our freedom. Well, I think there's some things that it's important to put into in, into context. When the Emancipation Proclamation was issued in 1863, right. it was issued provisionally. The promise was that all of those who were enslaved in states in revolt would be free. In effect, President Lincoln and the government was promising to... Uh, make freedom available to people over whom they had no control. Because the states that did not revolt against the Union and that had slavery, in those states the Emancipation Proclamation didn't affect the enslaved. So there's that kind of complication. In the period after the Emancipation Proclamation, the largest number of black people who become uh, freed walk off of plantations and join up with Union forces. And they become what's usually referred to as contraband. As the war moves south, a number of slaveholders in the southeastern states, kept moving their slaves west. And ultimately, many of them into Texas because they thought they were going to be able to keep the same regime that was existing in the southeast in Texas. By the time uh, General George Granger gets uh, to Galveston in the late spring, early summer of uh, 1865, the Union has won the war, and the Union is in control of every place. So the order number three makes sense because it could, in fact, be enforced. But you have to keep in mind that did not get rid of slavery. It ended the practice, but it was the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery. So the emancipation itself was a process that stretched over a long period of time and that was then reneged on because the period of the immediate post-war, the Reconstruction period, which lasted almost a decade, is itself followed by a retrenchment and ultimately by Jim Crow, which sought to replace 
the same kinds of limitations on freedom and economic opportunity, the same kind of racism that had existed in slavery under a new face. And that becomes the struggle of the next hundred years. So let me ask you this question, Barry. Do you remember the first event that you sponsored uh, and Brother Ralph was alive at that time? Yes. Do you remember it? Yes, I think it was uh, Representative Byron Rushing who was the speaker for it. Right. Now, I was impressed uh, last year uh, when I went and there was a reading about the Emancipation Proclamation, Juneteenth, and so on and so forth. Will that happen again this year? Yes. Uh, Jamada, who is, as I noted before, the chairperson of the observance, introduced early on the idea that we should actually read the documents on which the Juneteenth rests. So we, each year, read the Emancipation Proclamation, we read the General Order Number 3, and we read the 13th Amendment. So if someone comes and has not read or heard these documents, it's an opportunity to hear them spoken aloud, but also on the grounds it's possible to pick up copies of the documents as well. Barry, can you tell us a little bit about the other parts of the program? Yes, we have an expanded program this year. At noon, there will be a flag raising of the Juneteenth flag at the Dillaway Thomas House, which is the same as the Roxbury State Heritage Park on Elliott Square. Ben Haith, who started the Juneteenth National Committee in the uh, 1990s, will come and he will raise the flag and comment on it because he designed the Juneteenth flag. After the flag has been raised in a brief ceremonial activity at Dillaway Thomas House, people will be invited to gather and to form the genesis of a parade. The parade will then come from Elliott Square to the museum grounds. It will come down along the edge of Nubian Square and go up uh, Warren Street to Walnut, then it will turn on Walnut and proceed to the museum grounds. The museum grounds will have opened at uh, 2.15 and will be alive with vendors and with the encampment of the 54th and other activities. People will then be invited to come in and to take part in those activities. The activities themselves will range from art-producing activities for young people through reading aloud, through storytelling, a whole spectrum. Everybody, we can't say enough in terms of thanking Mr. 
Him and Barry Gaither for coming in today and being our guest on the other page uh, radio program. Uh, Barry, you took, you took it all by yourself. I thank you for that. And But what I want to remind everybody is of the uh, happenings with the General Edward O. Gordine Statue Project. Uh, folks, we are we have a plan. We don't have a date yet for the unveiling of the statue, but we will get a date. Uh, we're looking for some volunteers to work with us around media uh, coverage on a few other things. We would appreciate if you were interested in wanting to be a part of this great event, this historic event. Not yet a date, but it's coming. 857-204-5312. Questions will be answered around volunteers needed for the General Edward O. Gordine African-American Veterans Park and the installation of the statue. Again, our guest has been Edmund Barry Gaither. We thank him. We thank you for being a part of our listening audience, and we will see you at another time. Thank you, and God bless. Thank you.